On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is The Rock Podcast, and I'm Denny Somak. As a rock historian, producer, and best-selling author, I've been conducting hundreds of interviews over the years. On this episode, we have one of the elder statesmen of rock and roll, Roger Earl, a founding member of one of the best live rock bands in history, Foghat. Now, they formed in 1971 when Roger, Dave Peverett, a.k.a. Lonesome Dave on guitar and vocals, Tony Stevens on bass, after all three musicians left the popular British group Savoy Brown. Rod Price joined on guitar and slide guitar, and that's Foghat. Now, you may know them from their debut album, which featured an amazing cover of Willie Dixon's I Just Want to Make Love to You. Later records include Fool for the City, Driving Wheel, Stone Blue, and the classic track Slow Ride, which was named one of the top 50 best hard rock songs of all time by many music papers, as well as VH1. They have a new album out, Sonic Mojo, and it's some of the best work they've ever done. Roger's been in the business for 52 years, and he talks about it all, including his audition with Jimi Hendrix. This guy has seen everything including early shows by Led Zeppelin, Deep Purple, you name it, he's been there. I hope you enjoy listening to this conversation with Roger Earl. Hi, Denny. How you doing? Hi, Denny. Linda, how are you? I'm okay, how are you? God, I haven't seen you in a long... I saw this guy, I said, wow, this is so cool. Denny, how you been? Okay, last time we did it from a studio in Philadelphia, and then we went to lunch. I know, I know. That was a long time ago. He hasn't changed at all. No, neither have we. You know, we don't change anyway. I'm going to leave you two to your interview. Have fun. I hope we get to see you soon. Yes. I'm living in Florida now, so I don't know when you're coming Uh, back to Florida. Where? Where? I live in um, Boynton Beach outside Delray. I know where that is. Well, we have a studio down in Deland. Oh, okay. Three of two of our guys are from Florida. New Smyrna and Melbourne. Okay. You know, we're playing in what, Anna Maria Island. In I have China. a friend who lives in Boynton Beach. Yeah, uh, anyway, Nancy uh, and Bill live in Boynton and, Beach. And Domoritis. Um, alias Fat John. Okay. <laughs> Florida. Anyway. Good seeing you. Nice to see you, Linda. Bye, honey. Bye. So, Roger, you got a new album out. I got to tell you, it's really good. One of the it best is, you've done in years. I heard the first single and I said, Wow. So. Yeah, it's um I, I we're really, hold on. <laughs> Sonic Mojo, I know, I forgot to mention. Yeah, right. And uh hold on, hold on, it gets even better. Oh, uh, colored vinyl, probably. Yeah. Oh wow, purple. Okay, great. Excellent. <laughs> so um, um uh, why 17 how many 17 years since the studio album but no, no it's uh no seven years since the last studio. but we this is our 17th studio album okay i got it 
Uh, we've had numerous live albums. Uh, since Dave passed, we've made four studio albums and three or four live albums. So yeah, we keep we keep putting stuff out there. Um, you know, uh, this one took. Uh, the last one we did was uh, seven years ago, I think. It was under the influence. Um, and actually, Scott Holt sang on a couple of those tunes and played guitar. Right. Yeah. Uh, Charlie Hune retired nearly two years ago now. That was kind of strange, but I don't think anybody uh, feels good about saying I'm retiring now. I uh, know I wouldn't like it. Uh, I, I hated it a couple of times when I damaged myself and couldn't right. play uh but um scott holt is our new lead singer uh he's uh he's an absolute blast to play with he played with uh, buddy guy for 10 years mm -hmm. and um i've actually known scott since 2014 so it's not like he's the new kid um and it's i'm really pleased with the new album so this album's on your own label distributed by sun so i dressed appropriately yeah, look, see. I went and visited that studio several months ago and had to buy the uh, had to buy the shirt, you know. Yeah, that, that's right. I had one. I don't think it's fit me <laughs> anymore. Uh, I bought them years ago. Uh, I remember Dave and I uh, went there one time. Um, this was. Early Foghat days. I don't think we went there when we were in Savoy Brown. Might have done. But I know we went there early days at Foghat, 72, 73. We went to the studio, had a look around. Hallowed ground. Yeah, definitely. Uh, a lot of English bands have recorded there. Yardbirds, a bunch. A lot of them I've talked to said they recorded there. So anyway, um, first single is called Drive On. And you have Kim Simmons on it. How did that come about? Well, Kim Simmons uh, wrote the songs about... When we were doing our last studio album under the influence, I invited Kim to come down and play with us, which he did. And uh, we spent a couple of days finishing up the album down in uh, Nashville, Tennessee, with our producer Tom Hambridge. Mm -hmm. And um, after after the second day, Kim and I were just hanging out talking. I think we had lunch together, and he said, "I'd really like to write some songs for Folkat." I said, "That would be great, but you just have to play on them." He right. said, okay, well, that didn't work out. Um, Kim actually sent me the, the the four songs about three years ago. Right. Uh, just guitar, his vocals, and I think he was playing to a click track. <clears throat> and then he got ill. Um, he couldn't play on the record, and uh, he sent us four tracks. We did three of them. The fourth one we're keeping back for the next record. Um yeah, it was a sad day when we lost Kim because uh, after, you know, after we left the band in 71, left Savoy Brown, and I reconnected with Kim in some time around 76. Savoy Brown played out here on Long Island at the uh, university here, and uh, we've stayed in touch ever since. And the last 10 years or so, we've done a number of shows together because Savoy Brown was with the same agency. Linda got Savoy Brown with our agency, Paradise Artist. And uh, so we got to play a lot together. And uh, <clears throat> yeah, it was, uh, but the three songs that Kim wrote for us, um, 
course, we got our grubby little fingers on it and changed it a little bit. But um, I was really pleased with the way they turned out. Kim was, uh, and I mean, the, his last 20 years or so, every year he would put out an album. Right. I mean, all, all original songs. And um, I listened to some of them. And I even said to the guys one time, I said, we should probably do some of these songs. But um, Kim wrote us four songs uh, for us, and uh, I'm grateful. It's a shame he couldn't play on them, but I think I think he'll be pleased with what we did with them. <laughs> now, for those that don't know, and you can correct me, Savoy Brown has had like 61 members over the years. Is he a real uh, taskmaster? No, I think it's really hard trying to keep a band together financially you know like um you know everybody has to earn you know a living uh you know everybody has bills to pay some of us have families to feed that the hard part is keeping a band together um i mean i know i've i've been involved in that but and i think that's what the issue with kim was because if you're not working like Kim decides to take six months off to write or record, what do the other three or four band members do? They're mm. not there anymore. Uh, it was different when myself and, and Lonesome Dave were in the band. We played every week. Uh, except when we were in the studio and it really took more than a week in the studio back then. Uh, so we were working all the time. We'd work seven days a week. I know. For those that don't know, could you tell me a little bit about Savoy Brown? Because they were really popular in the States, I think more so than in the UK. And you were doing the college circuit. You were playing everywhere. And you, you had a huge following over here, but way different from the UK. So what was that like being in that band? It was great. I joined uh, Savoy Brown in 1967. It was, uh, what was I, 19 or 20? Right. Uh, it was great. Uh, I, I I did two auditions. The first audition, I didn't get it. They got another drummer, which lasted about a month. Apparently, he couldn't play a shuffle. Can't join a blues band if you can't play a shuffle. <laughs> anyway, uh, he went for the second audition at the Nags Head in Battersea in England. Uh, borrowed my dad's cars during the week. Took drums up there, played for about two and a half hours or more. Then I started backing up the drums and uh, they said, well, where are you going? I said, well, I'm going back to work. I was a commercial artist. They said, we've got a gig in Birmingham tonight. <laughs> so uh, that's how that started. But um, I did well, they, five still, they still talk about you in Detroit. <laughs> they do. Yeah. Oh, Detroit. Yeah. What a, uh, I should have worn my Detroit. I've got a shirt. Actually, Charlie Hume gave it to me with Detroit right now. I wear it with pride. Right. Detroit is a rock and roll city. I have very, very fond memories of playing there, the Grandy Ballroom. And I still have a number of friends there. Um, I did an album a while ago with some friends there, um, uh, session work and stuff. Uh, yeah, Detroit is uh, it's a great city, great city. It'll be back. Yeah. All right. Let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, the new album and some of the songs on it. They're mostly original, but you got, uh, I think, four or five covers, and I want to ask you about them. Uh, the Willie Dixon tune, Let Me Love You, Baby, was that just always a favorite, or 
Well, it was originally um, Willie Dixon, yeah, uh, but Buddy Guy, uh, I think, did the quintessential version of that. And of course, Scott Holt played with Buddy Guy for about 10 years. He was the other guitar player in the band. So, you know, Scott can play. And uh, we had a side project a few years ago with, uh, well, actually, let me explain that. We were we were doing the Under the Influence album with, with Foghat. And we were about three or four songs short for an album, a double mm-hmm. album. Right. So, um, I invited Scott Holt to come down to our studio and write three or four songs with us. Instead of writing three or four, we wrote 17. <laughs> <laughs> and then it's, that started a side project called Earl and the Agitators, which is basically Polcat now, Brian Bassett, um, uh, Rodney O'Quinn played on a couple of tracks, but it, the, most of them it was uh, Craig McGregor played on. But Rodney played on the live shows, right? And Brian Bassett. So that started my relationship or our relationship with Scott Holt, um, Earl and the Agitators. And writing with Scott, especially Scott, um, it's uh, I have I have a ball writing with him. It, uh, you know, somebody will have a riff, Brian will have a riff, or Scott will, um, I'll have some ideas for the lyrics, uh, and or, and it's it's fun. We have a really good time. We have our own studio, so it's, uh, we have a really great time playing. So uh, Willie Dixon wrote, I Just Want to Make Love to You, which was, of course, one of yeah. your earliest songs and probably the first radio hit that you had in America. Did you ever meet him? uh yes what was that like it was great uh he's a legend he's written so many songs 77 Falkat was playing three nights at the in 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 chicago at the amphitheater there and uh the first night willie dixon sent his daughter down we treated her like the princess that she was Second night, Butch, one of his sons, came down with his with his sister, and we treated them like the prince and princess we viewed them to be, and they were fabulous kids. And on the third night, the man himself came down, and, the, and this is how I read it. Uh, I just want to make love to you was a big hit off the Bobcat's first album single, and we just released the live album, and uh, I just want to make love to you was the single off of it. So Willie Dixon's getting all this money from this band called Fog Hat. <laughs> and he, so I think he sent his kids down there to say, yeah, see what these kids have got under their fingernails, you know? And uh, I guess he got a good report from his kids because uh, the, on the third night, the man himself came down and it was, uh, I have a picture here. I have, we have numerous pictures down at our studio down in Florida of us hanging with Willie Dixon. There would be no rock and roll if it wasn't for people like Willie Dixon and Chuck Berry. Right. So, and that was, uh, what made you want to cover that? Because that was your first big, big song in America. Um, Was everybody a fan of his? And Yeah. Excuse me. When we were, hold hold on a second. No problem. 
<clears throat> I can't speak. Hold on. Oh, here, we, here we go. Okay. Just had some chips. Yeah. <clears throat> um, when we were in Savoy Brown, Dave and I <clears throat> would often jam that riff uh, sound checks. So uh, that's where that came from. Um, up to that point, I think the Stones <clears throat> did a version of I Just Want to Make Love to You Real Fast, like a Bo right. Diddley feel. <clears throat> but I think our version, um, other than Muddy Waters, of course, which is the version, right. uh, I think it was, was real popular. A number of other artists have done, played our version of I Just Want to Make Love to You, which I think is really cool. You know, it's like, you know, when you've got other blues singers playing your version, like we were just a bunch of kids from London. Um, yeah, it's, uh, I think we got it right with that song. And uh, yeah, it was, um, it was it, it was very good for us. Yes, it was. Now you also covered uh, Howlin' Wolf's How Many More Years, which of course Led Zeppelin covered. They called it How Many More Times and said that they wrote it. But you did the uh, the original version by Howlin' Wolf. So I imagine you were a fan of his too. Yeah, uh, <clears throat> Howling Wolf. I mean, what what an artist, what a singer, what a harp player. I mean, he was, I remember uh, when I was 15 or 16, I got uh, my first album of Howling Wolf. I got it sent over from, I belonged to a record club in Chicago. And they, <clears throat> they sent it over to this store in London. And uh, I remember when I got it, it was like, uh, it was it, absolutely brilliant stuff. I never got to meet him uh, or see him live, but I've uh, seen him like on various shows. I saw him when he came to England. He toured back when I was 16 or 17 years old, I think he did. Uh, that, that, that package tour that, uh, you know, everybody I talked to, every English musician must have been at that show because they all yeah. talk about it. Oh yeah, it was it it was like magic, and I remember, and and I've seen film footage of like when Muddy gets off the plane, and basically, the rolled the red carpet is rolled out for them, and I I think they weren't you know but back in the states where they all came from they weren't treated with the respect and accord that was due them as far as the English musicians and English public as well, you know the. Uh, fans um it was uh there was some real magic in that early like chicago style blue stuff especially for me anyway the way it sounded muddy's band was just like this fantastic band and and howling wolf i mean his songs were like they had such power and magic in them and like from this kid growing up in southwest london and central london it was like this was like, it was magic. And, um, you know, tried to play those songs. Obviously, we <laughs> adulterated them somewhat, I think. But I think that was how we learned to play. And, like, you know, my passion for that kind of music is still with me. I, actually, Lonesome Dave said to me one time, um, actually, I think we were doing an interview somewhere and somebody asked him why he was such a blues fan. It is because, and he said, there's an honesty in the music. There's there's always a story or something. I, I'm a big Johnny Cash fan, oh. and like, and when I was like 12, 13 years old, I I would sing Johnny Cash songs. Ooh, uh, 
she loves you big river more than me but <clears throat> i was the only kid in south west london who was singing it and uh because my brother colin older brother colin would um he uh johnny was obviously on the sun label and again it was always about the songs he didn't johnny cash didn't even have a drummer in his band back then luther perkins on guitar and a bass player i think and johnny of course played guitar but there was always a rhythm and there was always a song there this is the land of music america usa this is where it all comes from um that wonderful mixture of blues jazz rock and roll bebop country uh uh hillbilly uh gospel music mm -hmm. and to this day this is the land of music they we send music out to the world um and that's i think that that's one of usa's greatest greatest attributes the fact that we have this music that all these different things come together and they have this wonderful sounds coming out it's a shame we can't get everything else as good as our music but um america gave music to the world it's a good start without music life will be a mistake <laughs> so um you're sort of an elder statesman and band leader uh you've uh, played with everybody in fact i don't know if you're aware of this but uh fog hat or uh, yourself uh the zombies and the who are the only bands that played back then that are playing now whose lead singer is not mick jagger <laughs> yeah uh well you know it's for me it's always been about the music yeah um uh I haven't I haven't really listened to the Stones new stuff. I heard something the other day. I, I guess I'm going to have to get the record. Uh, I'm a Stones fan. Uh, it's always. great. Best thing they've done in a long time. It's a great yeah. song. I mean, I used to go and see them when I was growing up in London. Uh, Ilpie Island, uh, right. the Richmond Club, Ricky Chick, uh, the Marquee. I saw them once. Ilpie Island was my favorite place to see them. It just sounded great in there. But <clears throat> now I've always been a Stones fan. Charlie Watts, what a great, great drummer i mean he i remember like uh, a couple of times i saw them back in the day and uh actually it was their records that i really liked his the way he played um you know he was he was something else so there again he did have keith to play with i mean what i mean rhythm guitars i mean honky tonk women i mean uh i mean the list is just goes on forever and ever the stones rolling stones Ladies and gentlemen, the Rolling Stones, the Rolling Stones. So you you pretty much have seen everybody when they started out. So I just want to ask you to give me a few comments about some of the bands that impressed you because you saw them all in the early days, like Zeppelin, Deep Purple, Jethro Tull. I mean, yeah. what were some of the great shows that you remember from the late 60s and early 70s? Um. Actually, Jethro Tull were great. They had a fantastic drummer. Um, he was a real highlight. We did... Um, Five Bunker, right? Five Bunker, yeah. Super guy, too. Uh, terrific drummer. But I remember doing a show with... It was with uh, Jethro Tull, uh, Led Zeppelin, and Savoy Brown. And there was another band. It's a beautiful day. Hard violin player, I think. Yeah. And uh, <clears throat> I believe we were in... Um, 
Philadelphia, and we were doing a sound check. Bonzo was there, Clyde Bunker, myself. I can't remember if it was Jimmy Page and or Kim. I know the, there was a violin player. Probably couldn't hear him very well. That was but, a guy from It's a Beautiful Day. Yeah, right. That's right. Uh, but what I t remember then, we were just jamming. So we've got these three drummers on stage. All you could hear was Bonzo. <laughs> <laughs> and we weren't amplified at the time. We were just playing. And... Uh, he was a hellacious drummer. Um, I got to meet him a number of times, and any time I met him, we had a really good time. I remember one time we were in New York City, uh, down in the village. We were at a bar, and he had a couple of empty Heineken bottles. He was doing drum solos on the table. Didn't break them. Table looked a bit damaged afterwards, but um, he was a fantastic drummer. And, and uh, I didn't see Zeppelin a lot, but... Um, the drummer was the one who impressed me in that band because he he made that band into something else. He trans uh, just unlike Ginger Baker as a drummer um, transformed the way drummers approach rock and roll. Those those two specifically, uh, and that's a hard thing to do, like to change a whole genre, a whole world of drumming. Um, and I, th you know, throughout history of, of you know rock and roll and music, I think there have been drummers that have moved you. But those two, in recent times, uh, they put a whole new stamp on it. I mean, Ginger Baker playing. I'd met him a number of times. Also, when I was growing up in London, when I was seventeen or eighteen, I did some shows with him with the band I was in. He was he was very cordial back then. He was always fine with me. But I read some stories about him. Drummers, that's scary. <laughs> what you should watch the movie Beware of Mr. Baker. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. So I want to talk to you about a, a, a few songs that, of course, are sort of like your greatest hits. And I just want you to give me a couple comments about them. Um, you know, did you know they were going to be big when they when you first did them, or you know, did they get written somewhere unusual? So let me start with Stone Blue. Uh. I thought uh, it was one of my favorite songs ever, uh, the, the way we played it. I remember at the time our manager said, it's too fast. And I'm like, it's rock and roll. You know, it, it, if it was if it was slow, it would be a slow rocker. But Stone Blue, that's a rock and roll song. Yeah, um, we did that out here on Long Island at the Woolworth Mansion. We had a, the, RCA, the RCA mobile unit is what we recorded it with. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, it's one of my favourite songs. Rodney, our bass player, sings that one. Um, yeah, it's a good song. Good record, actually. Fool for the City. One of my all-time favourites. Um, Nick Jamieson had just joined the band on bass and was also producing that record. We actually took three months or so off the road to record. We hadn't really done that since our first album that we did with Dave Edmonds in Wales. Um, so we're up in Sharon, Vermont, on the top of a mountain recording it. And uh, we had a, a band house down in the valley and we go up the mountain and each uh, day. Um, it was a lot of fun making that record. But we were working on the arrangement to the song in the studio. We hadn't we would put down some basic tracks just to see where we were going with it and, and getting the arrangement right. And uh, we're back at the house after 
finishing about three or four in the morning. Dave and I are sharing a bottle of red wine. And I said, Dave knew where I was going with this. I said, yeah, Dave, how many chords are in uh, Fall for the City? And he had a wry smile on his face and he said, it's only three, Rog. There's some passing chords, but they don't matter. <laughs> Anything other than three chords has to be viewed with a certain amount of suspicion. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Tell me about driving wheel. Um, yeah, that was uh, Rod's masterpiece. That was from uh, the Night Shift album we did over in Connecticut. Um, that was interesting because it was a time when Rod and Dave were struggling to like uh, put songs together. And I think it was also Craig McGregor on bass's first album with us. And um, we we set up in, myself and Craig McGregor were in one room together with a you know, nice big drum room, great sounding drums over there. And um, we were working on the arrangement of the song and all the breaks and stuff, but we were playing to a click track now, which, you know, you, you can do. It's not my favorite way of making music, but that's that's a tool that you use, if, if especially when you're um, either creating a song or if you don't know the song and like you're reading a chart, which I don't do. Um, but we played to a click track to keep everything even. And Dave was sitting there with an electric guitar and he'd, he'd be in the dr drum room and bass room and he'd sing guitar solo now chorus verse break coming up and like craig mcgregor and myself would have to like know when to sort of like move the song and play different parts and get all the stops and breaks there's a number of them in that song it was uh you know it's like uh i think with anything there's there's lots of different ways that you have to learn for one for a better word your craft you know, when you're playing drums, you know, I pre I prefer like just jamming and playing and let let it happen organically and have fun with it. But sometimes okay. you just have to work. We worked on that song, and because Rod's guitar playing was so intense, especially that song, Driving Wheel was like a masterpiece as far as I'm concerned. And Rod Price is one of his greatest efforts. And then we actually laid down the track first and the arrangement, and then Rod overdubbed his guitar because then he could just wail away. Uh, and one of the issues I think we we probably had with it is that Rod needed to like have a vehicle, a road to travel on to put his get his guitar right. And um, yeah, I think it's one of Rod's uh, greatest efforts as far as like recording. Okay, so got to ask you obviously about uh, Slow Ride, which is one of those songs when it comes on the radio, you got to turn it up. It's like you're free bird. You know, <laughs> did you realize it was going to be as big? And I mean, it's still played today. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, um, actually, at the time, when we recorded Nick Jameson again was our producer and played bass on it. Um, he was the one who really uh, helped uh, arrange it. When we first started recording it, rehearsing it, I should say, Nick had just joined the band and we were rehearsing in uh, my, myself and Rod Price had a house out here on Long Island and we 
I was living actually upstate New York with my girlfriend, but in uh, Bearsville. And uh, Nick and I came down. Nick had just joined the band. And we just started jamming. It's like a um, it's like a John Lee Hooker riff played in 4-4 as opposed to a shuffle. Da -da, da -da, you know, that's what that that's where it came from. And Nick Jameson said, Hey Rods, just go bang. <laughs> two floor tom tons and a bass drum. Um on was it on two and four? So uh, that's where it started. Nick Jameson did all the arrangement on the song. Dave said, Oh, I've got some words that are fit to that. And um, that's how it happened. Nick and I mixed that song uh, as the single, and the B-side was Save Your Loving. We were mixing it up in Sharon, Vermont, and then we drove back down to Bearsville and uh, went to see Paul Fishkin, who was in charge of Bearsville Records, and we played it for him. And it was, was it, seven minutes and 40 seconds, or maybe it was eight minutes, I think. And Paul Fishkin said, uh, no, it's too long for a single. But that was the only single that the band actually said, this is the single. We fought tooth and nail for it. Eventually, they cut it down to about four minutes, I think, anyway. But a number of uh, FM radio stations, FM, uh, actually played the full-length version. But that was the only single where the band actually said, this is the single. Myself and Nick Jameson were very adamant about that. That was so the only one. Are you going to reissue your Christmas song? <laughs> Which one? Uh, well, all the one for Christmas. I didn't realize you had more than one. Yeah, um, there we got a number of them. Um, in fact, I, I talked to Linda, our manager, about uh, putting out a Christmas record. We've got like four or five, maybe six songs, actually, Christmas songs. So maybe we can do that. Uh, I don't know. We're kind of busy at the moment, like promoting um, Sonic Mojo. Right, your newest album. Yeah. Okay, so I got to ask you just a couple more questions. Yeah. Why didn't the Rick Rubin project work? I didn't know much about that. Um, I've been trying for years to talk Dave into getting the original band back together. There was two Foghats traveling around America. David left the band in 1984 and moved back to England. I carried on playing with Craig McGregor and uh, Eric Cartwright. Anyway, um, Rick Rubin wanted to do a record with the original band Foghat. Uh, that's as I understood it from our manager at the time. Um, Rick Rubin was busy either with Mick Jagger and or Johnny Cash. People with Mick Jagger or Johnny Cash. I mean, I don't mind being third in line for that. Um, but it didn't happen. Um, I think uh, basically we all wanted to get in the studio and work again, like put a record together with the original band. Tony Stevens was back in the band. Nick Jameson um, was uh, producing it, which I was fine with. Nick Jameson is an absolute uh, brilliant musician uh, and an incredible uh, producer as well. And uh, he's one of those people that can play everything really, really well. Don't you hate people like that? He's from Philadelphia, so I know him. He was in a yeah. band called The American Dream. That's right. And I think he did some acting and, you know, but he's done a lot of stuff, produced a lot of stuff. He's uh, he's living in Reykjavik, uh, 
Iceland now. Uh, we keep in touch with him. We're good friends. Um, he does voiceovers, acting, comedy. He has a blues band now. Um, in fact, we're doing. Um, I guess we could. Well, what what uh, we're doing uh, with folk? I guess it's like a documentary. Yes. And so I will get uh, Nick over here. We've been doing it for the last five years or so, working on it. Um, uh, maybe it will be finished when I'm finished. <laughs> what was your audition for Hendrix like? I came in fifth or sixth. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, that was... Um, uh, it was it was fantastic in, you know, uh, in retrospect, the fact that I got to play with him. And he was very generous with his time. Um, uh, his manager, Chaz Chandler, I'd played in a band that Chaz put together when I was about 18. So he had my phone number. It didn't go anywhere. Uh, but he called me up. Uh, I was working as a commercial artist and asked me if I'd heard about him. You know, all the famous, you know, Pete Townsend, Jeff Beck. You know, everybody was talking about this uh, magician of a guitar player that was here. Um, yeah, I did the audition. Uh, I borrowed my dad's car. My brother and a friend of his helped me set my drums up. There was a bunch of drummers down there. There was three or four drummers before me. Um, it was... Um, actually, when we were outside in the rain, we were waiting for the club to open. It was midday in, just off Piccadilly Circus. And Jimmy came up to me and started talking to me about songs he'd written the night before. Um, he played. He, just, he had a Marshall stack. And it was just me playing. And um, I have to be honest, I didn't really have a clue. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he, when he, he did, a, when he, he was just playing and I, I couldn't find where two and four was and I was fumbling. And then he did a slow blues and I went, ah, and that, that was good. And he did like a Chuck Berry song. I think we did, I seem to recall a, um, he did a Bob Dylan song, I think, but he was very generous. I was there for probably half an hour, maybe 40 minutes playing. It, was, it seemed like that, but um, he did the right thing. Mitch Mitchell was um, an incredible drummer and really brought some real magic uh, to uh, Jimi Hendrix's experience. I remember listening to the first album. Um, I shared a, a flat in London with uh, my best friend, Dave Hutchins, a bass player. I remember listening to Jimi Hendrix's first album. We were sitting there going, you know, a gap, a gape. It was like, yeah, it was incredible. Uh, it was music that none of us had ever heard or uh, it was, yeah, it was magic. Jimmy was magic. So uh, how's the wine business and how did you get into that? <laughs> uh, I kind of like wine. It's really good for you. Somebody shouldn't have told me that. Um, uh, the wine business is doing okay. We haven't uh, made anything um, in a couple of years. We have a 2014 Chardonnay and we have a 2013 Pinot Noir, both from the West Coast, uh, mid, mid coast of California. We're out watching, working uh, with some uh, winemakers in Oregon. Mm. We were out there uh, this summer and I met a couple of uh, uh, winemakers out there and we talked. 
and actually gave us uh, one one of them gave us a case of uh, all their vintages of twenty one and twenty two vintages, uh, four different uh, three whites and uh, a pinot pinot noir, and of course the band sort of locked onto them. I managed to save four bottles and brought them home so I could taste them uh, here. But um, we're probably going to be working with them and and get some uh, some wines, probably 20, 2022 vintage. Uh, the other wines are going good. It's like back in the day, I think uh, payola was probably cocaine or something else. Now we send bottles of wine to people. A bit more <laughs> civilized. <laughs> okay. What's next? You're, you're on tour. Uh, is this just a few dates you're doing? Are you going to do a full tour? What's the story? We, we do uh, we do between uh, 60 and 70 dates a year. It, it's slowing down a bit now, um, like maybe once or twice a week. Um, no, we're going we're gonna to roll to our old and rock till we drop. Most of our dates we fly in. Uh, I bring my uh, pedals and cymbals and snare drum and... Uh, the back line is supplied, a, you know, a DW drum kit to my specs and Marshall amps for everybody else. So it, it works. We don't have to go in a bus. We, that can get old after a while, you know, like going on the road for like two or three months. Um, I like coming home and playing twice a week is maybe three times a week is great. Then you get to go home two or three days. It's quite civilized. <laughs> get to go fishing, hang out with the wife and the girlfriend. They are, they're one of the same. <laughs> <laughs> yes. All right. So uh, your new album is called Sonic Mojo. It's on your own label, distributed by Sun. You want to hold it up again, you can. <laughs> and it comes in uh, vinyl as well as CD. Uh, and the vinyl is colored vinyl. Right. And uh, anyway. I want to thank you for taking time out and wish you a lot of luck with this new album. Uh, thank you. Oh, no, I have to read something for you. Sure. Sonic. Adjective. A frequency within the audibility range of the human ear of waves and vibrations. Mojo. Noun. A charm or amulet thought to have magic powers music with magic powers there you go uh that's what most of the uh old blues singers say right you got my yeah. mojo uh yeah it's um i'm i'm i think i was i've been happy with my, with just about every record we put out but i'm particularly proud of what we're doing now the band we have the time of our lives on stage um uh, I'm really blessed by having musicians in the band that not only brilliant musicians, but some of the best people I know. Nobody argues. Everybody loves to play. We're up to an hour and 45 minute shows now. Because um, most of the time it's an hour or an hour and 15 minutes. And we say, can we play a bit longer? And they go, some places yes, some places no. But I'm having the time of my life playing with these people. Uh, it's a real band in every sense of the word, and uh, I'm real fortunate. Well, again, I want to thank you very much for uh, giving us your time, giving a little history. I love talking to you. You you, you are the history of uh, British rock, and 
I'll hopefully I'll see you on the road and look forward to uh, hearing this album all over the place. Thank you, Denny. And I'm going to roll till I'm old and going to rock till I drop. Okay. Thank you. Thanks, Roger. Appreciate it. Say bye goodbye to Linda. Linda for me. I will do. You got it. Bye, to, bye Linda, says Danny. Bye, I'll see her. Tell her I'll see her on the road. You see her on the road. I'll see you on the road. Okay. All right. Stay healthy. Have fun. Maybe right. we'll see you in Florida. You too. Thanks. Bye-bye. That's Roger Earl discussing some highlights of his career and the new Foghat album, Sonic Mojo. Thanks for listening to The Rock Podcast. We're available on all the usual platforms, wherever you get your podcasts. And we have a video version on YouTube as well. You can also sign up for our channel and you'll be notified when a new episode is released. It's free, no charge. The Rock Podcast is now the number one podcast for classic rock, so thank you for listening. Find us at the website, therockpodcast.com, and we also have a Facebook page. You can send your comments, questions, and suggestions to me at hello at therockpodcast.com. That's hello at therockpodcast.com. Thanks to one of our sponsors, authenticrockcollectibles.com, where you can see a lot of classic items. Check it out. I'm Denny Somak, and that's it for this episode. to achieve the American dream. The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would they shot? Would they shot? Would you kill? Yes. <laughs> My mom and dad. My mom and my dad. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, the Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.